right. Good morning, Gateway. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Um, before we dive into the scripture this morning, uh, I wanted to take a minute to just introduce myself. Uh, I look around and I see some people that I know and some people that I've never seen before. Uh, and I don't think that's very fair if I just launch in and you expect you to know me because, well, I'm not that important. Uh, so uh, my name is Jesse Rudy. Uh, my wife, Amy, and I joined Gateway way back in 2003, uh, back when Gateway was meeting at Rachel Carson Middle School. Um, that was before anybody in the world had ever heard of an iPhone, uh, and back when Netflix was sending you these discs in the mail. Uh, kids, your parents will tell you about it. It was dark. It was, it was a scary time. Um, but we lived here in D.C. I was practicing law, uh, downtown D.C., doing labor and employment law. Um, and after a few years of doing that, um, I joined an organization called International Justice Mission. Um, International Justice Mission is a, is a Christian organization uh, with a mission of protecting the poor from violence around the world. Um, and IJM is really best known for their work uh, to combat slavery uh, and human trafficking. Um, but that's not what I did when I first joined IJM. Uh, when I got the call, I thought they were going to send me to Cambodia to work to combat sex trafficking. Uh, but I got a phone call and they said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you to Uganda uh, to protect widows and orphans from this crime that we call succession-related property grabbing. And I was on the phone and I was like, I don't know what that means. That doesn't sound like human trafficking. Uh, also, that sounds really, really, really boring. I mean, did your accountants or your lawyers make up that name? Because I know your marketing people did not. Um, I have no idea what it is, and it's a lot of words. Um, but we had signed up, right? And so it wasn't what we thought, but we got on a plane. Um, we got on a plane to Uganda, and on my very first day, my team sat me down. And basically what they explained to me was that if you are a woman in Uganda and you lose your husband, your odds are about one in three that men will come in the night to drive you out of your home so that they can steal the land that it sits on. And at first you might think, oh, it's not so bad, you know, you lost your home. You know, I lost my home once. I had, got out of this apartment. I moved into the next apartment. That's not how it works in Uganda, right? If you live in rural Uganda, land is life. Land is a family's primary source of income. It's their primary source of food. It's their primary source of shelter. It's their primary source of security. And it's their primary connection to the community. It is everything. Unfortunately, it's also a really, really valuable asset that attracts the attention of violent men who will do every horrible thing that a man can do to a woman to drive you out of your home. Uh, it's kids in service day, so we're not going to describe those things. But you know what I'm talking about. Every horrible thing. And then they'll leave you for dead. One of our first clients uh, was a woman named Grace. Grace was 27 years old. When her husband died, she had five kids already, um, and she was HIV positive. Uh, on the day that she buried her husband, on the day of the funeral, her brother-in-law came 
with all the family, and they pushed Grace into the house. They locked the doors, and they got out torches. And they told Grace that she had a choice. She could sign over the deed to the land and give them everything that she and her husband had worked for. Or she could stay, and they'd burn that house down with her kids inside. And so she ran. And she ran until she found our team. And our team stepped into that situation, and what we did is we partnered with local police, local prosecutors to help Grace. We helped to get Grace back onto her property, get her title to that property. We actually helped her sell it so that she could buy another piece of property somewhere else where she could be safe. And we helped work with the police to make sure that those men were prosecuted for their crimes. And after Grace was back in her land and after she was safe again, she flourished on all fronts. If you want to go to the next slide, this is Grace and her kids at her new home. Grace built that house with her own hands. She actually built every single one of those bricks and carried it on her head about a mile so that she could build that house. And then she built a farm. And then she put all five of her kids through school. Because what Grace didn't need was a handout. What Grace needed was safety. Because she is strong. And when she's safe, she can do amazing things. All in all, my team in Uganda, we were running this little pilot project in central Uganda. We put about 1,000 women and children back in their homes. And we put about 100 violent criminals behind bars. And that was really awesome. But what was even better was that when we, the program was over, we went back and actually looked at the, at the data. And what we found is that our work didn't just help our clients. Our work actually changed behavior. If you want to go to the next slide. What we saw was that after years and years of the odds of a widow losing her home being about one in three, after our team was done, those odds of losing your home had dropped by 80%. What that meant was that there were tens of thousands of women and children that we never met because they never came to us, because they never lost their home in the first place. And so we met as a leadership team at, at IJM. I actually had breakfast with Gary Haugen, the founder. And what we decided to figure out is like, okay, if this is true, how do we scale this? How do we replicate it? How do we make it this the reality for widows and orphans all across Uganda and all across Africa? And what we ultimately decided was that the best way to help the most widows and orphans was to spin that out into a separate standalone organization. And so in February of 2020, about three weeks before the world ended, uh, I stepped out of my job of 12 years and started this tiny little organization called Redeem International. And at Redeem, our mission was to live out the biblical call of caring for widows and orphans in their distress. What we believed was that law enforcement would lead to deterrence, deterrence would lead to safety, and safety would lead to prosperity. And so what we do is we deploy tactical, multidisciplinary casework teams, teams of Ugandan professionals, attorneys, social workers, investigators that partner with local police officers, partner with local prosecutors to drive real live cases through the justice system so that people will be protected. We partner with local police officers to identify victims of land theft and to arrest the men that steal the land. 
We partner with local prosecutors to restore those families back to their homes and to ultimately convict those men of their crimes. And then we partner with local churches, local ministries, local social service providers to rehabilitate those clients so that they can thrive in their newfound safety. And then we partner with the local media and local leaders to broadcast the results, not to tell people how great we are, but to send out a warning to those guys that are gonna steal land from somebody else that the world is different today. Through one case, we restore a single family to our home. But through a critical mass of cases, we create a deterrent impact that protects all of the widows and orphans in a community. Right now, we have launched four tactical casework teams. The first one was in October. The second one was a year later. Last year, we launched two more. And we now have built a plan to uh, launch three teams a year. You want to move to the next slide? So we launched a team in Gulu first, then a team in Wakiso, a team in Aganga, a team in Mbale. And over the course of the next two years, we're going to launch three teams a year until we have 10 in strategic locations all across the country. Because we believe that we can, in partnership with our local partners, actually make all of Uganda's widows and orphans safe. At Redeem, what we believe is that to redeem something is to take something that has been lost, broken, stolen, or destroyed and to restore it to everything that it was created to be. That's actually how we look at the gospel, right? That is the gospel story. In the beginning, God created the world and it was good. He created men and women and it was very good. We lived in perfect relationship with God. We lived in perfect relationship with one another in a world with no sin and no death. And then sin entered the world. And all of that was lost, broken, stolen, and destroyed. We lost that perfect relationship with God. And we quickly turned on each other to tear each other apart. But then, through that entire arc of human history that stretches all the way from Genesis to Revelation and ultimately flows through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is working to restore those broken things, to restore each one of us to be everything that we were created to be. That is it, right? That's the gospel. We were created for perfect life with God. Sin came in and destroyed that, and God is doing the hard work to restore us to everything that we were created to be. That's why we're all sitting in this room right now is because we believe that to be true. At Redeem, we also believe that God really loves parables. I don't know why. He loves to tell stories. He loves to tell really simple stories that help us understand truths that are way too hard for us to wrap our little tiny brains around. The Bible is full of stories that point us back to the redemption story that is the gospel, right? Jesus told parable after parable, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the parable son, or parable son, parable of the prodigal son. Then you... Pull back and read the scriptures and you see the story of Ruth. Ladies are studying the 
book of Ruth? Oh my gosh, the book of Ruth is just a parable for the gospel. The story of Jonah, the restoration of Peter, all of these just point us back to the gospel, right? They tell us the same story. I mean, look at the thing that you guys are studying with Ed right now. The line of Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation that will be a blessing to the whole world. But Abraham's offspring were sinful. They chased their own gods and their own goals. They even sold each other into slavery. And what did they get? Centuries of slavery, wandering, and war. But through all of that, God was working restoring them to be everything that they were created to be until ultimately that thing that was promised to Abraham actually came true in Jesus. Well, let's zoom in just a little bit closer to the actual story of the Exodus. That's what you're studying, right? God released the children of Israel from slavery, set them on the other side of the Red Sea, and told them, I'm going to send you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then sin entered the picture. They chased their own gods. They chased their own goals. They created a golden calf. And they got 40 years of wandering in the desert. But through all of that, God was redeeming. He was restoring. He was forming them to be the people that they were supposed to be. So that 40 years later, they crossed over the Jordan River to take everything that they were created to take. Well, let's zoom in even closer, right? Moses Moses somehow survived a genocide and was raised in Pharaoh's house. Moses was built in a lab to liberate the people of Israel. Like, there's nobody better than that. But Moses was an idiot. He grasped at power too quickly. He did his own thing. He killed an Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew out of his own power instead of out of God's strength. And so he ended up fleeing to Midian, where he didn't lead people because he was too busy leading sheep. But God was redeeming, he was restoring, he was making Moses everything that he was created to be. So that, one day, he would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. So with all of that in mind, let's take a deeper dive into Moses' life to see if there's anything that it has to tell us about the work of redemption in the world. Um, You guys have been doing this with Ed, so I'm going to kind of move through it quickly, but I am going to do a rundown because I don't know who was here and who wasn't, and frankly, I don't know what Ed's been talking about. Um, So the story starts a few generations after Joseph saved, uh, saved his family from starvation and moved all of his family to Egypt. The Israelites flourished in Egypt, and they became so numerous that they became a threat to Pharaoh. And according to Exodus 1, it says, after the Egyptians became afraid of the Israelites, it said, so the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter, with hard labor in brick and mortar, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. 
Basically what that means is that to protect themselves from the Israelites, the Egyptians made them slaves. But God saw what was being done to the Israelites. And in Midian, he called on Moses to engage. According to Exodus 3, God met Moses in a burning bush. And he said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned with their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And after a little back and forth between Moses, which was basically Moses just crying and whining and making excuses for himself, Moses goes to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. It says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. But Pharaoh refuses. He says, what are you doing away from your work? Get back to work. I'm not letting the people go. And not only does he refuse, he punishes the Israelites for Moses making the request. The text says, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks, but require them to make the same number of bricks. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to Moses' lies. This does not make the Israelites feel any better. They go to Moses, they go to Aaron, and they say, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, Moses. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses puts his tail between his legs and he runs back to Midian and he whines to God a little bit more. He says, is this why you sent me, God? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon his people. You haven't rescued your people at all. And God reassures Moses. God turns him back around and he sends him back to Egypt with a new plan. The plan was plagues. Basically, God told Moses to go back to Pharaoh over and over and over again and tell him, you're either going to release my people or I'm going to do really, really horrible things to you. The plague of blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies. Apparently, God had a thing for bugs. The plague of dying livestock, the plague of boils, the plague of hail plague of locusts, the plague of darkness. And after each one of these plagues, which all were really pretty truly horrible, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let the people go. And so God told Moses, it's now time to bring out the big guns. You tell Pharaoh that he's going to let the people go or I'm going to come down with my angel of death, and I'm going to kill every firstborn son in this entire country. And Pharaoh is a moron because he's just stiffened his neck and said, I'm not going to let him go. And God made true to his promise. 
in one night, he swept through and killed every firstborn son in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relented. He agreed to let the people go. But as soon as they were out the door, as soon as they were marching down the road, Pharaoh was like, wait a second, I just lost my entire labor force. Give me my chariot. Give me my army. We're going after the people of Israel because we've got to bring them back. And the people of Israel look over their shoulder and they see the world's most powerful army bearing down on them. And they turn on Moses one more time. They say, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Just let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. But Moses didn't buckle. In that moment, he looked at the people and he said, do not be afraid. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you. The Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. And God miraculously parted the sea. And the Israelites walked right through. And Pharaoh chased them right across. But the scripture says, but the Lord swept them into the sea, them being the Egyptians. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And the entire army of Pharaoh, the largest, most powerful army in the world, not one of them survived. And finally, after hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, the Israelites were standing on the banks as free people. All right, I'm taking a quick water break. Talk amongst yourselves. All right, so what does Moses' story have to teach us? I think there are three big things. The first one, and I think the most important one for us today to hear, is that God wants us to engage. According to the scripture, God met Moses in a burning bush. And after he told him to take off his sandals... He said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned with their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. So now go, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In this very brief statement, we can see that God has compassion on his people. I have indeed seen their misery. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned with their suffering. Throughout scripture, God is described as a compassionate God. In the Psalms, David says over and over that our God is full of compassion. In Lamentations, Jeremiah says his compassions Never fail. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul praises the father of all compassion. 
Now, compassion is a very interesting and very powerful word. It actually is rooted in two Latin words, passio, which means to suffer, and cum, which means with. So when God says, I am full of compassion, what he's saying is, I suffer with you. In other words, God doesn't just see suffering and move on. He enters into it alongside the person who's being abused and mistreated. David says in the 146th Psalm, God has compassion on all that he has made. This is actually a mind-boggling statement when you think about all the things that God has made, which is everything. What David is saying is that God is actually suffering with every single child who's being abused in her home today. He's suffering with every refugee who's fleeing Ukraine or Sudan right now. He's suffering with every single woman who's being raped for profit. He is suffering with every single one of those widows who is sitting in her home afraid right now because there's a guy with a machete on the other side of the door. If that is even close to true, it has to be excruciating for God. It is the depth and breadth of God's compassion that helped me understand just how much God wants it to stop. The other thing that you can see from this little statement is that God has a plan. And I don't necessarily agree with God about this plan, but the plan is us. I have come down to rescue them, so now go, Moses. I'm sending you, Moses. The scriptures are full of God's people crying out to God saying, do something about injustice. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call him to account for his wickedness. They are equally full of God crying right back to his people. You do something about it. In Isaiah, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That's God talking to us, not the other way around. In Micah 6, God has shown thee, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Amos, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream, failing stream. And in Matthew, Jesus gets after a few people and he says, look, you've neglected the more important matters of the law. You give tithes, that's great, whatever. The more important matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. What God is saying over and over and over again, I want you to be my agents of change in this world. I will be with you, but I want you to engage. I am working to redeem all things, everything that's been lost, broken, stolen, and destroyed, but I want you to be my agents of redemption in this world. 
as Ed likes to say, if you forget everything else, don't miss this. Next slide. We serve a God of redemption who is working to redeem each of us to himself. And at the same time, that God is inviting us to join him in his work of redemption in a hurting world. Yeah, don't miss that, right? We serve a God of redemption who is at work in the world redeeming each one of us to himself. But that same God is inviting us to join him in his work of redemption in a hurting world. So that's the first lesson. God wants us to engage. <coughs> the second thing that Moses' story teaches us is that when we do engage, it's going to be a fight. This is particularly true if the fight you tend to pick involves injustice. Because you see, injustice is fundamentally different than other kinds of evil in the world. In that there is always somebody else on the other side. Hunger can be entrenched. Poverty can be generational. Disease can be endemic. But none of those evils are nearly as committed as that guy with a machete who is bound to exploit that woman in her house. Look at this way. Fighting hunger won't get you punched in the mouth. Fighting injustice might. And to get into that kind of fight requires moral clarity of what you're fighting against. My old boss at IJM used to say, this is kind of a long, boring quote, sorry, but it's really important. Injustice thrives on moral ambiguity, equivocation, confusion, and failure to commit. Remembering that injustice is the abuse of power, we must know that injustice is strong, it's forceful, and it's committed. In every single case, it will prevail against the uncertain, the unsure, and the uncommitted. It's a lot like making a tackle in football. You guys won't believe this, but I did actually play football at one time. Um, and what I know is that if somebody is running at you, and you need to make a tackle, and you come in like this, you're going to get crushed. It's going to hurt a lot. And you're not going to be effective. The first thing they teach you when you strap on the pads and put the helmets and the shoulder pads on is that you have to have moral clarity about what you're doing. You have to be committed. When that guy comes running at you, you get down and you explode into him. And when you do that, it still hurts. But it doesn't hurt nearly as bad. And if you knock him down, you forget that it hurts. Because you're up strutting around. Moses had moral clarity that the Israelites needed to be set free. And because he had moral clarity, he was able to throw himself into a long, drawn-out fight that ultimately stopped the most powerful man on the planet. 
course, it was really easy for Moses to have moral clarity. God had come down and spoken to him in a burning bush. I don't think any of us are going to hear anything from any trees today. So how do we have that moral clarity? In my experience, the only way to have that type of moral clarity is to make sure that you know the facts before you get engaged. This is not our natural instinct. Our instinct is to hear a heart-wrenching story about grace and to throw on the cape and to come in and be like, I'm going to do something about it. But like Jesus said about the seed thrown on rocky places, this sort of engagement springs up quickly, but only lasts for a short while. When trouble and persecution come, and they will come, those sorts of interventions quickly fade. At Redeem, we investigate every one of our cases, typically for weeks before we intervene. We interview the victim, we interview witnesses, we collect evidence, we surveil the abuser. Until we know with no doubt and no ambiguity exactly what happened. We do this because injustice in its very nature is typically mired in deceit. Victims often don't tell you the whole story. We've had people come to us as victims that actually wanted to use us as a tool to steal land from other people. Witnesses often have their own agenda. They want to pit brother against brother uh, so that they can earn a profit. And abusers, particularly hardened criminals, well, they lie about pretty much everything all the time. It is only after we are absolutely certain that an injustice has taken place that we're able to have the moral clarity that we need to fight all the way to the end. And what I would say to you is, however you're going to engage, whether you're going to quit your job and start a little nonprofit, whether you're going to use your money to invest in things that do, you need to have moral clarity. Don't just hear a sad story and give some money. Do the research to make sure it's true and do the research to make sure that what you're investing your money in works. You have to have moral clarity if you're going to go the long road. In addition to moral clarity, you also need a plan. And you probably better have a backup plan and a backup to the backup plan. In the story of the Exodus, the first ten plans failed. Moses went and asked Pharaoh to just let him go out of the kindness of his heart. That failed miserably. So did blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. Those were all really, really good plans. Every one of those plans should have worked. And Moses probably went in there every time thinking, this is the one that's going to work. But they didn't. They often made things worse. Injustice is different. Because there's somebody on the other side who's going to counter every one of your moves. Because they're there to defeat you. So you have to be prepared not only to take action, 
but also to counter their reaction. My son Isaac is playing football. This is why the football analogies. Um, and they just got a new coach that installed the option offense. I love the option offense. It's partly because I grew up in Nebraska in the 1980s and 90s, and they make us, they, they actually teach you that in first grade, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade. Um, but I also love it because it's, it's really fun to work. It, it's fun to watch it work. It's basically a plan and a backup plan and a backup plan. When the quarterback snaps the ball, he's got a plan. The plan is to give the ball to the fullback who dives into the middle, right? That's a pretty good plan. That'll get you five yards almost every time. But if the linebackers come crashing down, that plan doesn't work anymore. Backup plan. Quarterback pulls the ball, and he's going to run it around the outside. Another good plan. That'll get you five to ten yards most times. But if the defensive end comes down to stop the quarterback, that plan doesn't work anymore. So he's got another plan. Pitch it out to the running back who's going around the outside. That'll get you 20 yards. I have a plan. He reacts. I have a backup plan. He reacts. I have a backup plan because I want to score the touchdown. In football, a backup plan helps you expose the defense. In the real world, a backup plan is really good because it keeps you able to maintain hope when your plan fails. It is crushing when an intervention doesn't work. And really good people will want to quit when that plan fails. You saw that in Exodus 5, right? Pharaoh responds to Moses by demanding the Israelites make bricks without straw. And as soon as the order came down, the people didn't cry out against Pharaoh, they cried out against Moses. May the Lord look at you and judge you, Moses. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. I mean, what a kick in the stomach, right? Moses had actually literally risked his life by going to Pharaoh. And he walks out, and the people that he risked his life for are calling down curses from heaven to kill him. And then just before God opens the Red Sea, and it looked like Pharaoh was going to slaughter them all, the Israelites again turn on Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt, Moses? Oh, you brought us out to the desert. That's great. Didn't you hear us when we said, leave us alone? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here with you in the desert. If you get into justice work, these sorts of counterattacks are not uncommon. Perpetrators of injustice are used to getting their way by pushing people around. So when they are pushed, what they do is they turn up the pain. They might attack you physically. Just last month, our team in Mbale got pinned down by a mob with machetes and rocks. They might attack you reputationally. When I lived in Uganda, there was, on occasion, a warrant out for my arrest. For something I didn't do. But other people didn't know that. Or, 
They might attack the people you came to serve. Last year, we got a civil judgment for one of our clients named Edith that would evict her abuser from the land and restore her to her land. While that was on appeal, they came and they burned down all of her huts, the houses that her grandchildren live in. When I talked to her, I actually talked to her before that, she was like, you're not going to abandon me, right? Because this is going to be bad. Any of those attacks could shut us down. But because we had backup plans and backup plans to the backup plan, we didn't have to despair. We had an evacuation plan with the police. And we have a plan for arresting all those people with the machetes. We had somebody else that could go to Gulu when there was a warrant out for my arrest so that I didn't have to spend time in prison, but we could still move the case forward. We had connections with a canine unit that went and found those huts that were burned down and followed them right back to that guy's doorstep and accelerated the case. Thank you very much. And when the backup to the backup to the backup to the backup plan finally succeeds, it's all worth it. For Moses, the Israelites got to stand on the other side of the Red Sea as free people. One day, a few months from now, Edith is going to stand in front of her house. She's going to cross her arms like that. She's going to say, this is mine, and nobody's taking it away. So that's the second lesson. The third lesson for us to take from Moses' story is that if we follow God into the fight... God will transform us through the process. Moses was a different person at the end of this story than he was at the beginning of the story. When Moses was standing in front of the burning bush, he was just a bundle of fear and whiny excuses. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? What if they don't listen to me or what if they don't believe me? I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And my favorite... Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. But when he was standing by the Red Sea, with the most powerful army in the world bearing down on him, he was somebody different. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you're never going to see them again because the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. When I was at IJM, we used to have this saying that Gary said over and over and over. He would say, God works miracles of transformation through miraculously transformed people. And I think that's true. I think we should be striving for our own personal transformation so that we can engage in the miracles of transformation in the world. But I actually think the inverse is more true. God miraculously transforms people by inviting them to engage in his miraculous works of transformation. It is in engaging in the fight 
that God uses to transform us to be more like Jesus. That is the promise. That is the promise of Isaiah 58. Um, We're just about to wrap up, but I want to do one thing with you. I just want you to listen to this. I don't want you to read it. I don't want you to see it. I want you to close your eyes and just listen to what God is telling his people through the prophet Isaiah. Settle in here. God says this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen for you? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, and if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will become like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. God promises to reward us for carrying out his plan to bring justice in this world. Not in some weird prosperity gospel, name it, claim it sort of way, but by promising to be with us in the battle and by promising to transform us through that battle to actually be more like Jesus. To make our light break forth in the dawn. To make our night like the noonday to satisfy our needs and to strengthen our frames, to empower us to rebuild ancient ruins, raise up age-old foundations, to be somebody that would actually be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That's the reward that I want. A reward that's transformative a reward that's eternal. This is the reward that the church should want. And this is why the church, each one of us, should be eager to intervene in the abuse that we see in the world around us so that we can be more like Moses. So that we can be more like Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are restoring everything that has been lost, broken, stolen, and destroyed. Thank you that you are restoring us, that you are redeeming us. Thank you for these signposts, these parables, these stories that point us back to the truth of your redemptive plan and purpose in the world. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn from Moses. Lord, give us the courage to step into those things that are lost, broken, stolen, and destroyed. Help, her to, help us to raise up age-old foundations to be a restorer of streets with dwellings. In Jesus' name, amen. 